A prile Milo was once called the high priestess of that old-time operatic religion. Fedora Barbieri had a fierce fan following, and Franco Corelli was dubbed the Prince of Tenors. How did they earn such revered legacies? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast as we continue our series on Verdi All-Stars. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, and today's episode once again features Met Radio commentator Ira Sif. This is part two of Ira's Verdi All-Stars course, which was a sold-out hit for New York audiences here at the Guild this past season. Thank you. <clears throat> Hello. Good morning. So, last week we, we looked at some great singers uh, in early Verdi operas, and we also took a peek at the beginning of the middle period of Verdi with Rigoletto. So today, uh, we're going to continue looking at that astonishing time during which, uh, in Verdi's career, when he turned out uh, Rigoletto, Trovatore, and Traviata in the space of two years. And we'll take a look and a listen to some of the artists at the Met who've given remarkable performances of middle period Verdi, beginning with Il Trovatore. Uh, as I mentioned last week, Verdi operas have been in the Met's repertoire since year one, 1883, when the Met opened. And in fact, Otello and Falstaff hadn't even been written yet. During the succeeding 134 years, an enormous array of great Verdi singers have been heard at the Met. So these talks, by necessity, focus on a small fraction of those giants. So apologies if a particular favorite is missing. It's only because of time. And in some cases, we're going to zero in on a performer whose work in Verdi was so individual uh, as to shed light on a particular work or a particular character they played rather than listening to another great voice hit another great high note. Having said that, we begin today with another great voice hitting a number of great high notes, uh, Franco Corelli. On January 27, 1961, an historic double debut took place uh, in Il Trovatore. Leontine Price and Franco Corelli both bowed at the Met, causing a sensation. While Price ignited both the audience and the critics, uh, Corelli was a huge hit with the public, but there were some critical questions uh, about his freewheeling style, particularly with high notes and phrases extended to the point of misshaping the music. With his matinee idol looks, his stentorian sound, Corelli immediately became the darling of audiences. As I mentioned last week, my friend Robert Misbin's mother, Miriam, attempted suicide <laughs> off the grand tier when he canceled the performance of Hernani. Uh, 
Corelli's nervousness was legend, and his technique was mostly self-taught. In fact, he despised voice teachers, ironically becoming one himself upon <laughs> retirement. Uh, his voice felt to him sort of like walking a tightrope walk, and so much so that he was perpetually on edge. His wife slash manager, Loretta, was always in the wings, and sometimes Franco would wander off stage so they could yell at one another during the show. <laughs> then he'd come back on, uh, having missed several cues. Loretta was fiercely protective. She feared competition. In fact, when Maria Callas returned to the Met for her two final Toscas in 1965, co-starring Franco and Tito Gobi, Loretta and Franco worked the people standing out in the cold on the standing room line waiting to buy tickets. It was freezing. It was March. We had to stand on the street for three days, sleep on the street for two nights to get tickets. Loretta and Franco appeared with coffee and donuts, holding their little dog, Romeo. Loretta would ask if you were there to see Callas or Corelli. <laughs> if you said Corelli, you got hot coffee and a donut. If you said Callas, I believe the dog would bite you. I was there to see Callas, but out of fear, I said, Gobi. I got coffee, but no donut. We're going to hear Corelli from a trovatore with Price singing Manrico's great scena, Asi Ben Mio and Di Quella Pira, the Cabaletta. Although he omits the trills in the aria, everyone did except Carlo Bergonzi and Richard Tucker. To be honest, they were wonderful at that. Corelli's low larynx vocal production combined with his intense squillo, the Italian at frontal placement of the breath, produces a sound that's both cavernous and brilliant. And you'll hear a snippet of Leontine in the little duettino between his aria and his cabaletta. So here he is in Manrico's Big Scena from Il Trovatore in 1961. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
With this uh, historic debut, Leontine Price became the first African-American superstar at the Met and in opera in general. She became as much a symbol as a person, the responsibility causing her to sacrifice certain aspects of her life in favor of protecting her voice and her status as an artist. Uh, other African-American artists had already sung major roles in the house, Robert McFerrin, Gloria Davy, Mattawilda Dobbs, all following the enormously symbolic debut of the great Marian Anderson in 1955. But it was Leontine who codified the image of the black diva and who paved the way for Martina Arroyo, Grace Bumbry, Shirley Verrett, Jesse Norman, Kathleen Battle. Leontine also inherited the position of Met Verdi soprano from Zinka Milanov, who gave it up quite reluctantly. And last week we heard Leontine in Ernani. Uh, and uh, when we arrive at Aida next week, we're going to hear a bit more of her. When Leontine left the Met in 1985, that position was inherited by a young American soprano who grew up speaking Italian and being weaned on recordings of Claudia Muzio, as both her parents were opera singers. Aprile Milo burst upon the scene in 1984 at age 25 in a performance of Simon Boccanegra as a last-minute replacement, plucked from the Met's Young Artist Program, but already possessing the most authentically Italian at Verdi soprano the house had heard possibly since Rosa Panzel. For the next decade, Milo appeared in eight Verdi soprano roles at the Met, covering herself with glory as Aida, Luisa Miller, Elizabeth in Don Carlo, Elvira in Hernani, Desdemona, and offering a stunning Trovatore Leonora. As we discussed last week, her career was derailed in 1994 during a Met premiere of Il when a sinus operation adversely affected her instrument. And like Corelli, Milo was a very nervous performer, feeling the pressure of her position and taking the responsibility of doing justice to Verdi's works very, very seriously. So uh, she began to serial cancel, leading to the loss of her position in the house. Her final performance was a decade ago. Uh, we heard her beautiful aria from Il Lombardi last week. Her ability with Verdi can now be seen, as well as heard in this uh, video from a Met Trovatore in 1988. This was the performance before the telecast. Uh, the telecast was to feature Eva Marton, who was somewhat miscast as Leonora. Marton stayed home to rest her voice. And so in the performance before the telecast, her cover, the young Milo, was put on. And uh, there was a test tape for the cameras before the broadcast. And Aprile managed to acquire a copy of the tape. And so uh, somehow. Here singing Leonora's ravishing and treacherously difficult Act Four aria d'Amor Sulali Rosé is Aprile Milo. James Levine conducts this performance. <laughs>
the uh, characters of Manrico and Leonora require power and finesse, the carrier, character of Azucena in Trovatore needs both of those, plus a degree of what opera addicts refer to as dementia. <laughs> Sheer abandon, hysteria. Trovatore is an odd work in a way after the revolutionary advances that uh, Verdi made in characterization and form in Rigoletto, he took a step backwards, making uh, Trovatore to a degree his last bel canto opera, using the conventional aria and cavalletta form <coughs> to a far greater degree than he had in Rigoletto. This is true uh, for the two lovers in the opera and their foil, the baritone Count de Luna. But Azucena fascinated Verdi most of all. In fact, he considered naming the opera La Zingara, the Gypsy. And for her, he wrote more unusual music, more text-based, more hyper-dramatic. Uh, and uh, what can you say about a woman who accidentally throws her own baby into a fire instead of her enemy's baby, aside from the fact that she needs a good optometrist? <laughs> there have been a number of great Met Azucenas, and one whose level of sheer dementia uh, perhaps exceeds all others is captured here on this 1957 film of Il Trovatore, and this is Fedora Barbieri, a mezzo who traded on sheer force of personality, on volume and gutsiness over finesse. And the results were often riveting, sometimes bordering on the humorous, but the total honesty and the total conviction of her portrayals always made her performances riveting, unforgettable, and simply beyond criticism in a way. Here's Barbieri's uh, Azucena monologue, Condotta Lerra in Cepi, uh, about burning the wrong baby by mistake, what you might call opera's greatest oops. <laughs> and her Manrico on this, uh, on this video is fabulous Mario Delmonico.
I miss that kind of total commitment. In <laughs> uh, if Trovatore is Verdi's final bel canto opera, then Traviata is perhaps his first Verismo opera. The intimacy of the subject matter, the focus on the heroine who's a high-class prostitute, Verdi's desire to have the premiere performed in modern dress, an idea that he was forced to abandon at the last minute uh, in favor of 18th century clothing at the premiere, all point to a startlingly different direction after the sweeping tale of gypsies, warfare, secret identities, and long-lost sibling rivals that comprises Il Trovatore. One can sense the compassion that Verdi feels for his heroine in Traviata, possibly inspired and intensified by his own situation living in Busseto, a small town in which he, his beloved uh, Giuseppina Streponi was an outcast, a woman snubbed uh, by the locals, ostracized because she lived with Verdi out of wedlock and had a past. There have been a number of notable Violettas in the Met's history, including Panzel, Tibaldi, De Los Angeles, Albanese, Licha holds the, uh, the Met record 87 performances, Mafo, Scotto, Sutherland, Virginia Zayani, Giorgio, Fleming, but perhaps none so remarkable, so complete as Maria Callas. Callas possessed all the ingredients for a fascinating Violetta, charisma to burn, brilliant vocal and physical acting, the physique de role, brilliant coloratura technique for the hurdles of act one, lyric delicacy and dramatic power for the other two acts. By the time that uh, Callas brought her Violetta to the Met in 1958, she had refined her musical and physical characterization uh, beyond what anyone had previously seen and heard, and I dare say not heard or seen since. The New Yorker review by the distinguished critic Winthrop Sargent says it better than I can. Last week, Miss Collis returned to the Metropolitan as Violetta in La Traviata, and this time I must say she left me in complete agreement with the most fervent of her admirers, who bellowed and thundered their approval after every aria. Taken as a whole, her interpretation of the part was far and away the finest that I have encountered at the Metropolitan or anywhere else in all the years I've been listening to opera. The high notes again wobbled very slightly now and then, but I'm beginning to accept this reedy tone as a characteristic of Miss Collis's vocal personality. It seems to add intensity to her singing. Hers is not a pure innocent voice. Pure innocent voices are a dime a dozen, but a fiery conveyance for female passion used with amazing skill to underline each shifting mood of this extremely subtle role. What emerges is a highly personal interpretation of Violetta in which it's impossible to disentangle the dramatic elements from the vocal ones. I might go on to say that Miss Collis's technique, marksmanship, feeling for musical emphasis and so on were as impeccable as usual, but in appraising these isolated ingredients of her singing, I would be missing the real crux of the matter, which lies in the way the ingredients are combined into total dramatic projection. I might qualify uh, as extraordinarily perceptive, I'm sorry, I might also call attention to her acting, which in this role at least would qualify as extraordinarily perceptive and gripping even by the standards of the legitimate stage. But the fact remains that in her approach to the role, to act is to sing, and to sing is to act. The entire interpretation from the aria sempre libra in the first act to Violetta's death, 
just before the final curtain was one of the most electrifying fusions of music theater and personality that opera goers are only occasionally privileged to witness and are seldom able to forget. He hated it. <laughs> Sadly, Collis's Violetta was not broadcast from the Met, but just four months later, she brought it to Covent Garden, where the BBC remedied that in what has become an historic document, Collis's final recorded statement of the role of Violetta before giving it up the following year. And we're going to listen to two extended excerpts from this remarkable performance that must be very close to what was heard at the Met. The first is Violetta's great Act One, Shana, the phrasing of the recitative uh, Estrano, in which Violetta ponders the possibility of love as an alternative to what she has come to feel as her vapid life. The way Callas contemplates this and the devotion of this young man in the aria for Se Louis, observing Verdi's markings and mining them for their intended meaning, then giving her own insight and personal stamp, is Verdi singing at its greatest. Then the way she flings out the coloratura of Violetta's defiant cabaletta, Sempre Libera, gets to the true nature of this young woman who's forced to see herself as a business to relinquish love because of choices she's already made, which she feels compromise her chances of a different future. Collis's skill in working around the frailties of her recalcitrant voice is sheer genius. She even manages to diminuendo the series of high C's toward the end of Sempre Libra in order to reduce the weight of her voice so the following intricate couplets she has to sing are articulated with breathtaking precision. Only the high E-flat she insisted on interpolating at the end of the aria evades her. This note, once her glory, by now 1958, just out of reach, is hollow and forced. But the rest is truly extraordinary Verdi singing. Cesare Valetti is her Alfredo. Nicolò Riccino conducts. <laughs>
after Traviata, Verdi went to Paris for Le Vers at the Opera, and Verdi hated working there. Everything took too long, involved too many people, making too many decisions. The process drove him crazy, and he resisted returning, only went back once more for Don Carlos a dozen years later. Uh, Vepre Sicilienne was translated then into Italian and became I Vespere Siciliani, which is how we first saw it at the Met when it finally came in 1973, and James Levine brought it with an impressive cast headed by Montserrat Caballé, Nicolai Guetta, and Cheryl Milnes. The uh, following season, Placido Domingo took over the tenor role and Renata Scotto the soprano role. The opera was revived again for Scotto in the 1981-82 season. It had been a mixed year for the diva, a disastrous opening night Norma, then a triumphant Puccini Tritico, a shrill off-form Musetta in the then brand new, now perennial Zeffirelli Bohème, and then Vespri. Scotto was one of the craftiest and most cunning vocalists ever to sing at the Met or anywhere in my experience. And when uh, the time came, she could pull out a miracle. Particularly moving was Elena's Act Four aria to her lover, Arrigo. The story is too complex to go into fully here. But suffice it to say that Elena and Arrigo are in love, but political conflicts make the two lovers into enemies. They are separated by hate, but now they come together as Elena is imprisoned, awaiting a death sentence for defying the occupying French governor of Sicily. She forgives Arrigo and says that hating him gave her more grief than anything she has ever endured. Now that they have this reconciliation, she can die peacefully. She tells him heaven awaits her, and she'll die thinking of him. So here's Renata Scotto at the peak of her artistic powers, shaping this gorgeous aria, filling it with emotion while maintaining the Verdi line, and negotiating a written two-and-a-half-octave chromatic run from a high C down to a low F sharp, quite beautifully. At the end, she then takes the final line of the uh, final phrase of the aria up an octave, uh, so that the written trill is up an octave and then ends the aria on a floated thread of tone, fiel de voce, on a high G, on the words, pensando a te, I'll think of you, and it brings down the house.
Uh, Verdi's next, <coughs> excuse me, next opera and the final one we're going to look at today was his brooding, dark, fascinating Simon Bocanegra. This is an opera that took quite a while to catch on at the Met and elsewhere because of the unrelentingly somber tinter, tinta, the color of the score. But uh, Bocanegra is a great Verdi masterpiece of characterization and orchestral writing, particularly in the 1881 revision of the 1857 original, the 1881 being the one that we now always hear. Bocanegra is, among other things, an opera of duets. In addition to the famous father-daughter duet that is the centerpiece of that opera, there's a duet for the tenor and the soprano, for the tenor and the bass, and two duets for the title character baritone of Simone with the bass character of Fiesco. Verdi gives these two characters two pivotal duets. The first is in the prologue at the beginning of the opera as Simone, uh, about to be voted doge of Genoa, sees a bright future for himself and his beloved Maria Fiesco, uh, Fiesco with whom he has had a daughter out of wedlock. And he sees that uh, there's a possibility that in becoming doge, he will rise to the level of uh, Fiesco, the family that Maria comes from, who are uh, patricians. And he is uh, from a seafaring family, and he's a plebeian. So he's hoping that this will elevate him. Uh, her father, Fiesco, hates the plebeian Simone. When the two men meet in the prologue, Simone doesn't know that Maria, who's been called back home and kind of trapped in the uh, palace, of the Fiesco family by her father has passed away, has died. And uh, all that Fiesco wants is uh, the baby that they've had. The baby was left in the care of Simone and a nursemaid. The nursemaid died and the baby disappeared. And so Fiesco is unrelenting in his desire to have this kid. That's the only way he will forgive uh, Simone Simone still doesn't know that Maria is dead. And they have this negotiation, and Simone uh, tells him, honestly, the child is lost. I have done everything to try to find her. I cannot find her. And uh, Fiesco is through with him. He says, well, then go into the house and find her. And then when Simone is out of earshot, he says, go in and find a corpse. Uh, so we're going to hear this first duet. Uh, the two Verdi singers that we're going to look at in this are Thomas Hampson and Ferruccio Furlanetto. When I was first called to the Met to do my very first broadcast, it was um, a Wednesday, and I was in New Jersey directing Turandot, and I got a call, uh, did I want to come in and be on the Met broadcast on Saturday? I'd never been on a Met broadcast, um, and I wasn't prepared at all, so of course I said yes. <laughs> and um, it was Simone Bocanegra, and it was with these two gentlemen, Thomas Hampson and Ferruccio Furlanetto. And the review from Opera News during that run of performances uh, read uh, something like this. Thomas Hampson and Ferruccio Furlanetto turned the two Bocanegra fiesco duets into the opera's anchoring moments, providing a sense of dramatic inevitability to the opaque often illogical events that be happen between them. As for Forlanetto, his great oaken bass in itself 
would have guaranteed him a success. But this was only a starting point for a portrayal of extraordinary fervor. He moved from thundering rage to heart-rending grief through incisive, lucid inflection. Beautiful work. So uh, next week we're going to pick up with um, some Valo in Mascara with Bergonzi, Aida with Price, Don Carlo with the young Forlanetto, actually, uh, and a lot of Otello with Delmonico. So um, see you then.
That was Ira Sif exploring great performances of Verdi by Franco Corelli, Aprile Milo, Fedora Barbieri, and others, focusing specifically on works from Verdi's middle period. For more of everything about opera, you can follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be back with you next week for the final installment of Ira's All-Star Tour. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.